Thank you for listening to the teaching podcast of Muncie First Church. If you would like to know more about us, go to MuncieFirstChurch.com. Or if you would like to support a ministry, go to the giving page, MuncieFirstChurch.com slash give. Well, let's jump into the teaching from this last week. Amen. Well, good morning. I wanted to say really quick, it has nothing to do with the sermon. My contact is driving me bonkers. So if I'm like doing this a lot, it's because I can't see like this side of the room. So I'm going to try to be able to actually read some of my notes here. This, this could just go terribly wrong. So, but this morning we are going to continue our Running on Empty series. We're in week two. If you were here last week, we talked about the idea of how oftentimes we burn out in our work. If we're going to burn out somewhere, it seems to happen often in relationship to the work that we do. And this morning, I want to talk about a condition that I think many of us, if we're, if we're honest and willing to admit, a lot of us struggle with this. Maybe not everyone, maybe not as many as what we talked about last week, uh, but I think that there are a lot that deal with what we're going to talk about this morning. But before we get to it and kind of reveal what it is, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had something bad happen to you, but you completely expected it to happen? Anybody? Like you knew going in, that's going to happen. Yeah. Like it's Monday. That's, yeah, it's going to be a mess. You know, you expected to get fired. You know, you, you expected her to break up with you. You expected to be treated badly by that person. Your, your fam, that family member that you, you know, you get together for Christmas and it always ends in a fight and then you get together again sometime through the year and it's like, why do they even keep coming, you know? Why do I keep going, you know? You kind of have that. You, you, you go out to eat and you're like, you expected the waiter or waitress to get your order wrong. You ever had that happen? Maybe, maybe it goes a little bit deeper than that and you're, you're, you're taking classes or something and you think, man, I just expected going in, I was going to fail that class. And I did. You know, or you expected the contractor to cheat you? You expected to not get the job? Or what about this? You expected them to have the affair? I mean, that's pretty intense, but maybe. Do you know what uh, that general kind of negativity or lack, in, uh, lack of faith in humanity is often referred to as? We call that cynicism. You ever been cynical before? Some of you are shaking your head now. I, I, I have my doubts because I'm cynical. <laughs> I think cynicism is, is, a, is a pretty big problem in our culture. I think it's something that a lot of us, if we're honest, we would say, yeah, I deal with that. And, and I think that as we've been talking about this idea of running on empty and burning out, cynicism is, is one of those many symptoms of burnout. It could be a, a red flag on your way to burnout, or it could just be a part of that journey. Again, as we said last week, it's kind of different for everyone. But let me just admit this morning, for me, this is one of my greatest struggles. This is, this is like one of the big ones for me. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just uh, kind of circumstances of life growing up and different things or whatever it was, but I feel like I just am naturally bent to being a little bit cynical. I like to refer to it as skepticism because it doesn't sound as bad, <laughs> but I think I'm naturally a little bit kind of bent towards being cynical. And um, one thing in particular that I can say uh, really has, has kind of 
lended itself to me feeling this way is some of the experiences I've had in ministry. Um, I, very early on in getting involved in ministry in the church, I got to be kind of behind the scenes, got to see behind the scenes. And uh, that was like from the get-go, like became a Christian, they re- pulled the curtain out of the way, and I got to see all the kind of the underbelly of the church, you know. And, and as a result, uh, I got to see some people who call themselves godly Christian people be really, really mean and really hurtful and hateful to other godly Christian people and or not Christian people. And it made me a little bit cynical. Um, in fact, I remember uh, when we were leaving our first church, we had been there, I'd been there 10 years, two and a half of those were on staff, we were leaving, and um, we had left that church under the circumstances of feeling like God was calling us to plant a church. Now, there were some other things that were going on that kind of led us to this decision, but that was the main reason. And I remember sharing that and being open and honest about that from the get-go, and, we, and, and a friend of mine who was on staff Keep in mind, this is a friend, somebody who, I, I mean, I spent countless hours with this person. We, he was a mentor and, and just loving our family, and we were very connected to him and his family and his kids. And I remember him coming to me and verbally attacking me and basically just saying that there's no way this is from God. There's, this is so wrong. I can't believe you're doing it. And I'm like, you're my friend. And this is how you're treating me. And I remember leaving that situation, leaving that church, being so, so hurt by that. And we went off and and we ended up going ahead and and, and we did leave and we did go off with the idea of of planning a church. And it was very strange circumstances that happened after that. We met Dr. Roland, got connected with the Nazarene Church, and and then some things kind of went along the way. And we ended up getting connected with another church in Hartford City at the time. And they were interested in starting something new, and they kind of, their vision aligned with our vision, and, and we were like, this is our opportunity. This is our opportunity to do what God is telling us to do, to start something new, and, and so we get, you know, in, involved with this church, and, and we go there, and they hire us to plant a church within the existing church, very established traditional church, been around for hundreds of years, and we're going to plant within them, and I remember going there in the interview, this will make sense, this will all tie together in a minute, but the interview, they asked me, so what are you going to do with the youth group? And I said, well, I think I'm being hired to plant a church and and be like the lead pastor of that church. And they're like, well, we want to know what you're going to do with the youth group. And I said, well, nothing. That's not what I'm being hired here to do. And then there was so much confusion between me and the board and the pastor. Nothing could go wrong with this situation, right? I mean, this is just going to go off and it's going to be perfect. Everything's going to work out just fine. And it didn't, in case you were wondering. Um, so we're like a few months into this. I got hired in March. We launched this church thing in, in July. We launched it. We had a preview service July, August, September. And then we went to weekly services in October, and God was moving. God was doing this amazing thing through, through this ministry that we had started. We launched with 70 people. We had 70 people when we first started, and I was like, in Hartford City? I mean, Al, you know, Eaton, like, really? Hartford City? 70 people want to come and be a part of a church? And, and we kind of plateaued at about 30 to 40, somewhere in there. That was our average for the first, like, six months, and I was like, God, this is amazing. And we had this bold vision of just, we, we said from the get-go, we're going to change the world, starting with Hartford City. As a bold vision, I know. 
If you know anything about Harvard City, that's really bold. But we were kind of dumb, kind of naive, you know, and we wanted to just change the world. And so we went, went after this. And, and, and so that was March and then October. By the next six months, when we'd reached six months, all hell had broke loose. I mean, it was just chaos. There's fighting between me and the senior pastor. We were co-pastors is what I was led to believe when I got hired there. There was some confusion. There was people mad. They said, we're turning the church into a nightclub and, and we're going to bring start serving drinks. I don't know where they got that idea. And they're having church meetings and it's just, it's just chaos and turmoil. And what happened in me was I just got angry and hurt and cynical. And the more and more that we tried to push forward, the more and more stuff just started pushing against us. And this was started in October of 2011. By October 2012, we left and shut it down. On our birthday, our one-year birthday anniversary of starting this thing, it shut down. And friends, let me tell you, I was so hurt, so hurt. It took a long time for me to heal from the hurt that came from that. And there was part, a lot of it was my fault. A lot of it was my confusion about what I was brought there to do and all the things that went on and, 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 and Christian people not being Christians, you know. And, and, and maybe you've had that experience in your life where someone who's supposedly godly didn't treat you very well. And man, I, I just, I became so cynical. And I think, you know, it, it took me more than a year to get to the point where I, I, I could trust somebody again. When we left there, I, I was done with ministry. Honestly, I had applied for countless jobs outside the church. I never wanted to work in ministry again. And that's actually how I met Karen Dowling. And some of you know this story, but I, I, I interviewed for a job at Indiana Wesleyan. I was like, I'm done with this. I, I want nothing to do with the church. And so hurt. And maybe you've had this experience where somebody who is supposed to be a Christian, supposed to be loving, has hurt you. And see, I believe it to be true that most of us in the room who said, yeah, I'm cynical, we don't start out like that, right? You're not born cynical. My, 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 my babies, they're not, they, are, they are not cynical. <laughs> they are the most optimistic people and naive people that you would ever meet. They, they believe the absolute best about everything. And that's how most of us start out, right? When you agree that you started out as someone who was passionate, excited, and optimistic. And, and cynicism happens not because you don't care. It happens because you do care. It happens because you do care. It happened because I cared so much. I wanted to reach Hartford City. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to do great ministry in that church that we were in. And it was because I cared and everything fell apart. Maybe for you, you have a plan to make a difference and to change the world. And then it fell apart and you became cynical. Or maybe it's, one of the, maybe it's this situation. You, you, you say, you know what, that person... They have hurt some people. They, they have a, a string of bodies behind them of people that they've hurt, but they're not going to do it to me. You ever been there? Maybe it's 
when you were younger and in and, 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 and relationships, you thought, you know what? You remember that being, being kind of young and dumb when it came to relationships and you always thought every new boyfriend or every new girlfriend was going to be the one? I, I, remember, I remember thinking that. Like, every new girlfriend was like, oh, we're going to get married. No, you're in eighth grade. You're not, <laughs> no, you're not going to get married. You, you know, or, 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 or maybe this, this is true for you. And, and, and I think some, a lot of these happen kind of when you're, you know, in, in, as a kid in high school and then maybe like early on in life in college, you, you think these, we're going to have kids and they're going to listen to us, right? And they're not going to be like those people's kids because I've seen those people's kids and my kids aren't going to act like that. I, I remember saying that. You know who says that? People without kids, right? <laughs> You always say that. You're, you are a great armchair parent when you don't have children because you, you know zero about children, right? And, and, and I, I mean, I, we, 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 we think that. We, we get in that situation where we feel that way. Do you, do you remember maybe being a little young and a little naive and a little dumb? Maybe you thought, oh, I'm going to start a business and we're going to change the marketplace. We're going to make a product and we're going we're gonna to change the world. And then it didn't happen. You thought, I'm going to fall in love and we're going to be together forever. So how does this happen? How do we become so cynical? Well, I think early on in life, we start out optimistic because we don't know any better, right? You just don't know any better. You don't, you don't know. And, 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 and as you get older, you begin to learn too much. You know too much. And you stop having that naive faith a little bit in, in life and in what, what could happen or what could be. You know, I, I often wonder, and we were actually talking about this last week as we watched the, the just disgusting Super Bowl. Um, if you're a Patriots fan, I pray for you. Um, but we were watching that, and it occurred to me that the coach of the Rams is my age. How do you get that job at 33 years old? Like, how does that happen? How do you get that kind of platform? And, and I wonder that often. Have you ever wondered, like, how is it that somebody goes off and they, and they start a company really young and they become this wild success or maybe they're, you know, they, they uh, become a talented musician or singer and they go off to Nashville and they make it big or, or maybe, you know, I have friends who I went to college with that planted churches and they planted them in communities that they had no family, no friends, they knew nobody. They just, like, parachute dropped in planted a church and it and it took off and it's like how does this happen god like what what is it about these people what is it about people who become famous musicians or famous athletes what is it and i, I it kind of occurred to me this week that there's a few things i don't have all the answers on this but i think i have narrowed down to a few things one it's just really lucky breaks so if you're like why didn't that happen to me just don't feel bad you just didn't get the lucky break you know the, the other thing is, is it's insane talent but then the last thing, I think it's this. They're just dumb enough to take the risk. They're just dumb enough to take the risk. And here's the thing that I know about people who deal with cynicism. We don't take risks. Ever. Cynical people don't take risks. They don't chase after their dreams. And they don't do new things. Cynical people are not courageous. We are safe we, we hunker down, we're the ones with the go packs in case all, you know, things go crazy, you know, that, that's, that's, what, that's what we do when we're cynical. And so this morning, I want to look at a text that I, I think really, really illustrates 
this idea of being cynical. A, a man who, who knew this all too well. Um, if you're familiar with the Bible at all and, 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 and the stories of, of the Scripture, you may know of a man named Solomon. It was King Solomon. He's considered to be one of the greatest kings of Israel. And we're going to look at Ecclesiastes. If you want to turn there, that's where we're going to go. But Solomon had had every experience, every pleasure, every opportunity the man, that a man could ever want. He was considered to be one of the richest people and one of the wisest people that ever lived. And so he knew pretty much everything there was to know. He, he'd experienced it. He'd had it happen to him. And at the end of his life, when he's experienced it all, had it all, done it all, he, he writes in, in the collection of his writings in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2 through 8, and then we'll jump down to verses 16 through 18. It says this, Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around and rises again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and round it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are never or we are not content. I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jer Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and to folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this is like chasing the wind. And then he gives us this final nugget of truth here. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Basically, he's saying, the more knowledge I gained, the more I knew, the sadder I got. Now, isn't that just exciting? I mean, it's like... Squidward or Charlie Brown or Eeyore wrote the Bible. Like they all got in a room together and just church curmudgeoned it up, man. They just like boo-hoo, like sad times, just wrote it together. And it's, I mean, it's like so inspiring. I bet you're just like, I'm so glad I came to church today. I'm ready to take on the world. But there is some wisdom here. There is some truth here. Because the problem with cynicism is that cynics always know the future. We always know what's going to happen next. And, and Solomon is saying, hey, the more knowledge I gained, the more wisdom I gained, the worse it was for me. The, the, because what happens is it didn't make me happy. It didn't bring me joy in my life. If you know everything that's going to happen, then it robs all the wonder and the mystery and adventure out of life. What, what's the point? I mean, what's the point of doing it? I mean, if you already know what's going to happen, it's like, you know, I know how that person is going to treat me. So what's the point of connecting with them and building a relationship? You know, uh, Rich mentioned small groups. I've heard this before. I've been in a small group before, and I know what that's like. So what's the point of getting in one now? I've heard it. I've been to church before. I know what that's like. Those people. What's the point? 
Why try? You know, I've tried to share my faith at work before, and it just doesn't work. So why try? You know, I've tried to fix this marriage once before. It didn't work. So why try? Why try? Author and and speaker Bob Goff, uh, in his book Love Does, he talks about this idea, and he talks about the idea that we should live life with an attitude of adventure, curiosity, and whimsy. i got to be honest with you. I've never said the word whimsy in my life other than talking about Bob Goff and reading his book. That's not a word that I use. But doesn't that sound just fascinating? I mean, to me, that's fascinating. I want to live a life of adventure. I want to live a life of, 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 of curiosity and whimsy. But the cynic's mindset, the, the life of a cynic is not one of adventure. It's certainly not whimsical, you know? I mean, it's just not. The cynic's way of thinking destroys all hope. It destroys all hope. It destroys all hope for, for relationships. It destroys all hope for your Monday morning as you go into work. Think about how your day could go. It destroys all hope for the fact that we as a church could, could reach Muncie and change our world here in Muncie, Indiana and beyond. The cynic's mindset de- destroys any hope or anything good that could come out of a situation. I like the way Kerry Newhoff put it in his book, Didn't See It Coming. He, he writes that when we live in this place too long or long enough, he says what happens is that you instinctively start to project past failures onto future situations. You ever done that before? I, I'm so guilty of this. And what it is, is it becomes a lifestyle of saying things like this. Well, women always dot, dot, dot. They always do, I don't know, whatever you think women do that's bad. Men always do dot, dot, dot. Churches always are full of hypocrites. Let me tell you something if that's where you feel. You're right. It is. Because we are all failures. Amen. Let's move on. You know, we all fail. None of us is perfect. But, but, but then it goes even further and you begin to say things like, well, kids always disobey their parents or disrespectful little brats. Not all kids, some kids. Millennials are always sponging off their parents, refusing to work. Not any of the ones I know. The government is always out to get me. Well, maybe. Maybe you're just special. I don't know. They're not out to get me. I have nothing to get. (laughs) So tell me about that. You know, pastors always whatever relationships always lead to and and see the thing is is that when we live life like this it never ends in something good it's never something hopeful in fact it might as well be everything is meaningless completely meaningless and see i think most of us start out with this attitude as as a as a protection mechanism we're using it to protect our heart 
to protect our life from whatever has happened to us in the past, whatever situation took place once upon a time. But what happens is it becomes, uh, it's a thing that starts out to protect our heart and it becomes a jaded heart. A jaded heart. A heart that is closed off. As we talked about last week, that burnout is such a lonely place because we just close off the doors to everyone else. We just shut everyone out and, and we, we keep people at a distance. And, and the temptation is, which I know this all too well, to say things like, well, I don't need people in my life. I can just do it on my own. You know, I don't need people. I, we will say things like, well, I'm, I'm trying to protect my heart from what happened once, once before. I, I'm keeping myself safe. You know, I, I've seen... Man, it's crazy. And I think about this. This is so true of my life. I know so many people my age who got married and who are already divorced, married again. Some of them married again, you know. And it's crazy. Like, that just blows my mind. You know, I can't even hardly think, fathom that, you know, as being my story. But it's so many people that I know that's their story. And so it would be easy to say, well, I don't want to become like them. I don't want to end up like them, so I'm not even going to put myself out there. I'm not even going to allow it to happen. This isn't going to happen to me because I'm protecting myself. I'm making sure that what they did to me once will never happen again. Here's the truth, though. The hurts of your past become a death sentence on your future. The hurts of your past will become a death sentence for your future. It becomes a thing that controls your life. It affects your ability to have good relationships with people. It affects your ability to be a good husband or a good wife or a good mom or a good dad or a good coworker or a good boss because you're constantly being affected by what happened back then and it's dictating who you are right now. And, and I know it's easy to say, well, you know, like I said, all I need is me and my Netflix right? A little Netflix time, just me, and, and you know what? I don't need anybody in my life. But the reality is, is that when we close ourselves off to people, we close our heart off to God. We close our heart to God. And if we live here too long, we start to stop trusting, we stop believing, and we stop hoping. And that's not how we're meant to live. That's not a good place to stay. There's no joy there. In fact, I would argue that that, that place only leads to destruction. Even though it's tempting to say, well, I'm doing it to protect myself. I'm doing it for me. It's, it, I'm being smart. I'm being wise like Solomon. But what I'm really doing is just headed down a path of destruction. Now, here's the good news. This is the... Eeyore's been preaching, now we're going we're gonna to flip it over and let uh, Spongebob have a minute here. You know, whoever was optimistic in any of those shows, I don't really know. Never really watched Winnie the Pooh, and I don't like Spongebob, I'm sorry. You know, but who, who was optimistic? Spongebob? Okay, all right, so I'm on the right track. All right, so we're going to let him have a, have a try. Here's the good news. Cynicism is a choice. It's a choice. You don't have to be cynical. You weren't made to be cynical. God did not create you to be a cynic. That's good news. And, and, and I'm reminded as I think about this, something that my dad used to say, and, and, and sometimes I question my dad's wisdom a little bit. He's a crazy old man, you know. I love him, but he says some pretty wild things sometimes, and you just kind of go, huh? And I always look at my stepmom and be like, is that right? 
that ain't right, is it? You know, and she'll tell, she'll tell you. She, you can tell. It's all over her face. You, know, you always know if it's crazy. But this was good. And I remember him saying this. I used to, when I was a kid, I, would, I started working with him when I was nine years old. I'd work with him every, every summer. Every day of the summer, we'd go to work. And, and he always would say, you know, you cannot control what happens in your day. You can't. You cannot control the circumstances of your day. I mean, you could go and it could just all craziness could happen. All chaos could happen. Everything could just fall apart in an instant. And you can't control that. But what you can control is your attitude. You can control your attitude. You control how you view your circumstances, your perspective on a situation. You can dictate that. And, and that's just amazing to me. If you think about that, I mean, we get a choice. We can choose our circumstances. And so for those of us following Christ, we have the greatest antidote ever for a life of cynicism. We have the greatest antidote for a life of cynicism. It's this. It is the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel. The hope of Jesus Christ. The, 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 the gospel message. Because... The hope of the gospel is all we need to defeat cynicism's dark reign over our hearts, over our minds, and over our outlook on life. It is, it is amazing what just a little bit of the hope of the gospel can do to change your perspective. Now, I know some of you are, are into this sort of thing, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm totally fine with that. Like, if you want to wake up in the morning and you want to tell yourself all the, all the good, happy thoughts and do all that, like, self-help kind of stuff, the, 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 the you know, power of positive thinking, I think that stuff is amazing. That's very powerful. But couple it with the hope of the gospel, because that's so powerful. There's so much more power in just in, in, in the hope of the gospel than, than all the positive thinking that we could ever do. Do it together. In fact, I think that's why we can be positive is because we have the hope of Jesus. Amen? And that hope is this, that you are completely lost and dead in your sins without hope. And a loving God came down from heaven. He left his place in heaven, came down to earth as a baby born in a manger and and survived all this chaos of of trying to kill him and get rid of him and grew up as a teenager can you imagine what that might have been like for mary raising jesus as a teenager i don't know i think the bible left that part out on purpose you know <laughs> might have been a different story at that point you know but but this amazing thing I mean, he grows up and becomes a, a, a an adult leading these misfit teenagers in this following of this great crusade to, to change the world and and then he he upsets the religious establishment of the day and and they decide to kill him and they nail him to a roman cross and he suffers and dies and then he's buried in a tomb a borrowed tomb he didn't even have his own tomb buried in a tomb and three days later he rises conquering death defeating sin Defeating Satan's schemes for you and for me. That's our hope, friends. Our hope rests in that event. It's not in the, in, in the failings and the struggles and the, and the plight of a pastor. Because Pastor Mark and I and Madison and Nathan, we will fail you. We will fail you. And if we haven't yet, just get in line. You know, it's going to happen. And if you look at the condition of the church, if we're putting our faith and hope in pastors, they're falling off off all over the place we will fail 
You can't even put it in the church. Because I've been to different churches, and sometimes churches are full of mean people. Not this one, I hope. But some. And so our hope can't be in the church, friends. I think that our hope can't even be in the words of a book. Our hope is and faith rests in the single event of Jesus Christ dying on a cross, being buried in a tomb, and rising three days later. That's what makes our faith significant. That's what gives us hope to go into Monday morning and Tuesday morning and all of our weeks and all of our days and live in a different attitude than a cynical one. That's where our hope lies. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it. He said when writing to the church at Ephesus, he, in this passage for me, it has always meant something to me. Um, when Lila was one years old, uh, I had designed this book with pictures of her and, and uh, as a baby when she was born and all this, and I wrote her a letter in the cover that I hoped, I gave it as a gift to Allison, and we, the idea was that we would in turn give it to Lila when she graduates high school or something like that, and, and I plan to do the same thing with Jocelyn. Um, but I remember writing this particular passage in the cover, and, and it's such a powerful one, and I, I think that it means a lot to what Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, but I think it means a lot for us here this morning. And so um, hear, hear this. It's chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It says, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. See, he's saying to them, I want you to grow in your knowledge of God. I want you to gain understanding, not just wisdom about life like Solomon had done, not just wisdom about how life works and all this stuff. Gain knowledge of God, of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given us, given to those he called his holy people, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. We are his rich and glorious inheritance. And we have hope because of that. Verse 19 says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. See, Christians should be the most hopeful people in the world because we have the same hope and same power that raised Christ from the grave and seated him in heaven with God the Father in us. It's in us. It's at work in us. It's what we have to cling to. And our hearts should be flooded with that confident hope. So what do we do? Well, let me just say, I am terrible at this. If I'm just being honest. I understand and believe wholeheartedly in the hope of the gospel. But when I'm driving behind the wheel of a car and there's somebody in front of me not doing what I think they ought to do, it's really easy to be cynical. When somebody hurts me and says something that I think they shouldn't say, it's much easier to just go be cynical again. And so I want to 
kind of turn to somebody else and maybe give some advice from someone else because I don't feel like I'm qualified to give you any advice on this. And so I want to reach from someone else. And in fact, I want to recommend three things here really quick, three books that I think you should read if this is something that you're struggling with in your life. I think we have a slide for this. The first one is I Declare War by Levi Lusco. If you are one of those people that likes the idea of power of, of positive thinking and that sort of stuff, this is an amazing Christian perspective on that. Amazing. And then Love Does by uh, Bob Goff. Incredible, incredible story of adventure and just living life with joy and whimsy and all of that. And then uh, the inspiration really for this entire series, especially this week and next week, is, is the book Didn't See It Coming by Carrie Newhoff. And I'd highly recommend that you read those books as well. I mean, these are powerful resources. And a lot of the message was inspired uh, by that stuff and, and, and scripture, obviously, um, today and next week. But I want to give you the advice that, that we see from Bob Goff and Carrie Newhoff, both in their book, of how do you defeat cynicism in your life? They both kind of say the same thing a little bit differently, but they say, say this in essence. Be curious. Be curious. If you want to defeat cynicism in your life, be curious. Because the curious are never cynical, and the cynical are never curious. Be curious. Be curious at work. Be curious in your marriage. Be curious as you raise your kids. Be curious as you just go to the grocery store. Defeat that cynicism in your life by being open to what might happen, what God might want to do in a situation. I want to read something from the book Love Does, and it's a little bit long, so bear with me. And Sorry, Nathan. Your fingers will hate me later. But Baumgoff writes this, and, and I think there's no one that illustrates a life of curiosity and adventure better than he does. He says this, I used to think knowing God was like going on a business trip with him, but now I know he's inviting me on an adventure instead. So sweet Maria and I, that's his wife, made a pact early in our marriage. When each of our children reached 10 years old, they got to go on a trip with dad. We called it a 10-year-old adventure. The idea was simple. The kids got to pick something in the world that captured their imaginations, fanned their whimsy, or sparked their curiosity. And then we'd just go do it together. There was no planning, no preparation, no thinking about all the details. We'd just go do it. Lindsay was the first to turn 10 and loved to have tea parties at the house. She'd heard of an event called high tea that some fancy hotels put on where you dress up, eat finger sandwiches, and drink tea. She asked me if I would take her. You bet. Where do you want to go? I'm not sure. Where do people drink lots of tea, Lindsay asked. London, I think, was my best guess. Great. That's what I picked for my 10-year-old adventure. When do we leave? I got on the phone and found a couple cheap tickets on British Airlines to London. A week later, we were off. Most adventures work that way. You don't plan them. You don't wait to get all the details right. You just do them. On a 10-year-old adventure, the goal is to do everything that you can in the time you've got. You don't know where you'll stay or what you'll eat or all the details that usually accompany a trip. For three days, the kids and I commit to learn about each other and the world through what we experience in it, not what we've read about it or planned into it. There aren't any other rules. That's what makes it an adventure, not a program. There's a special relationship between a dad and a daughter, something God designed on purpose, I think. It's not lost on me that of all the names God could have asked us to call him, 
we most often refer to him as Father. I think that's because he had, has the same kind of relationship in mind for us that I had in mind for my kids. I think a father's job when it's done best is to get down on both knees, lean over his children's lives, and whisper, where do you want to go? Every day, God invites us on the same kind of adventure. It's not a trip where he sends us a rigid itinerary. He simply invites us. God asks what it, it, what it is he's made us to love, what it is that captures our attention, what feeds that deep, indescribable need of our souls to experience the richness of the world he has made. And then leaning over us, he whispers, let's go do that together. Lindsay and I landed in London and hit the ground running. There was no waiting to counteract the jet lag. There wasn't any luggage to get. We saw everything we could possibly cram into three days. We went to Buckingham Palace, the River Thames, the Tower of London, the huge London Eye Ferris wheel. We ran through Hyde Park barefoot. We tried to make a guard in a bearskin hat giggle, and we took in a play in the West End. We ate fish and chips, and we said quite as we toasted each other with soda pops, lifting our pinky fingers toward the queen. We didn't rest, we didn't sleep, and we didn't know where we'd stay. But none of that mattered. And of course, the last thing we did before heading back to the airport was have high tea at the Ritz. We sat bleary-eyed at a small, beautifully apportioned, perfectly British table. A stoic server brought us our goodies, and I only made it through one finger sandwich before I looked across the table and saw a 10-year-old girl who would be 35 one day, someday taking her own kids on the same kinds of adventures. And I thought about what God must see when he looks at us. Like I saw my 10-year-old turning 35, I imagine he sees who we will all become too if we start RSVPing yes to his invitations and go after those things he made us to love. It's not all planned out for us either. And that's where most people get too nervous to take the next step. Here's what I'm trying to get to. This, this is the point right here. But know this, when Jesus invites us on an adventure, he shapes who we become with what happens along the way. Jesus wants us to live every day with that sense of what do you have for me, Jesus? What adventure do you have planned for me today? As I go into work, as I go to parent my child, as they take them off to daycare or to school or, or whatever it is that you do, that we would live curious of what God has planned for us. Not cynical, not saying, well, today's just going to be like yesterday was and it's going it's to be lame and it's going to be a struggle and I hate going to work and yada, yada. But Jesus, what do you have for me today? What are you going to do that I'm just going to sit back and be like, oh my gosh, only God could do that. And I know it was at the bank or in the factory or with wax or raising my two-year-old who never listens to me or in retirement. But it's curiosity of what adventures Jesus has for us. See, when we, when we stay cynical, we just grow stale and bitter. And that adventure leads nowhere because it's not an adventure at all. May we be curious for the plans that Jesus has for us for the wonder of his creation and his love and that we would desire to go on a daily adventure with our Father in heaven who leads our lives. Let that drive our relationships, our marriage, our parenting, our work life, our church life, our faith life, our ability to love other people, 
may that lead us. And may we not let the hurts of our past dictate our futures or rob us from being in the moment and just being curious of what Jesus has for us. Amen, church. We're going to stand together and we're going to sing a song today that is maybe new to some and, and maybe not new to others. It plays on the radio a lot. But it speaks of the truth of this idea that the same power, the same hope that lives, that, that, that brought Jesus from the grave lives in us. And that we should just be curious of what God has for us and what God is going to do in our lives and do through us. So let's worship together this morning. If you want to come and pray, you can. But, but let's just worship as we close out this morning and, and we'll continue next week as we talk about um, pride and, and, and all of that. And so I'm going to pray and then just turn it over to Nathan and, and we'll dismiss as, after we sing the song. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you this morning. God, our hearts are full and, and maybe some of us in here would say, you know what, this is really a struggle for me. This is really a struggle for me. I'm very cynical. I, I just, I don't see the best in a situation. I don't see the best in people. I don't hope for the best. I have very little hope and faith in, 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 in this world and humanity. And, and maybe there's reasons, God, that have brought them to that point. I pray, Jesus, that you would just move in their hearts, that you would lift that burden from them, that you would take that from them. May they be able to be curious and live a life of adventure and wonder of your creation and your plan for us. Help us, Jesus, to be more like that every day and in every situation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.